0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Security has to be friendly, or it won't get used. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we're joined by David Spark and Alan Alford. They are co-hosts of the Defense In-Depth podcast. They've got some good stories to share as well. And we are back. Joe, I'm going to start things off for us this week. There's a story that's been making the rounds. Uh, I've seen it uh, mentioned on Good Morning America and lots of general interest news shows. Mm -hmm. And it was triggered by the Los Angeles County District Attorney put out a statement uh, warning people against juice jacking. Now, juice jacking.
2: I've never heard of juice jacking. Okay.
1: The term was coined by uh, security journalist Brian Krebs. Okay. Very well known. Juice jacking is when you take a public charging station, a public Ah. USB charging station, and you put some kind of computer behind it. Right. So when someone plugs in, seemingly to get power, in addition to getting power, they get their device hacked because data can transfer over that USB cable in most cases.
2: It's how you would interface your phone directly with your computer.
1: Correct. And so the L.A. County District Attorney has put out this warning about juice jacking, I think particularly because we're coming up on the holiday season when a lot of people will be traveling. Right. And it's very common to see these days in airports and bus stations and other places, these USB charging stations Mm -hmm. where you can plug in your USB cable. It'll give you power. I was in the airport a few days ago and you saw people gathered around these stations desperately getting power for their devices uh, while they were on their way I have mixed feelings about this. First of all, I think the odds of you getting infected with something like this is very low. Mm -hmm. I think it is good general hygiene to rather than plugging into some unknown USB port to use your AC charger. Yeah,
2: to use your AC adapter. I would agree. There's also a device called a USB condom that you can get, which essentially takes out the two data pins on a USB connection. So all you get is the power pins.
1: You can also get cables that are power only. Right. Another thing they point out here is, and it's something we've talked about before, is that there are folks who have made malicious cables. Right. So if you see a cable laying around or a a cable plugged into one of these charging stations, don't use a cable when you don't know where that cable came from. Mm -hmm. Another point about this and a reason why I think it's probably not as big a deal as maybe they're making uh, it out to be is that both – IOS and Android have taken steps to prevent this sort of thing they in, have. in the they past have. few years. In
2: order for you to get hacked on Android, you have to turn on the USB device bridge or you have to make, change a setting. And if you don't have that setting set, then a lot of this is not going to do anything. They may be able to read files off your device, but they're not going to be able to install malicious software.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Same on iOS. They're aware of this. And so they've taken mitigations to prevent it. But, you know, just good hygiene, general hygiene. Carry that charging brick with you. Yep. And I have one of those. Use that instead of plugging directly into that USB port. And that could be, you know, I, again, I was traveling recently in uh, these days in hotels. You know, lamps will have USB ports Mm -hmm. in them for you to plug things into. I still use the AC adapter. Just use the AC adapter. It's uh, the safest way to go. Right. (laughs) All right. Well, that's my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us?
2: Dave, this week I want to talk about email again. I don't think we talk about email enough on this show. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But Agari has a new report out from their Agari Cyber Intelligence Division, which they like to call ACID which is a cool acronym, I think. <laughs> right? right, okay. And this is their Email Fraud and Identity Deception Trends Quarterly Report for 2019 Quarter 3. And some of the things in here are interesting. ACID uses a term called identity deception techniques, and they define that as emails that impersonate trusted brands or individuals. Okay. And these types of email campaigns have accounted for 64% of advanced email attacks. The composition of these deception emails is changing over time. And they've been tracking it. They've been releasing this quarterly report for a while now. Hmm. They say that impersonating brands has dropped about 6% hmm. as a percentage of these impersonation emails. But email attacks impersonating individuals have increased to 22% of the total of these impersonation attacks. And that's up from 12% in the previous quarter. Oh, that's and interesting. That is almost doubled. Email spoofing people are parts of sophisticated business email compromise attacks, right? right. Or BEC attacks. And they tend to have higher payouts, which is probably why you're seeing an increase in them.
1: And it, that's the thing where uh, you know I get an email that supposedly comes from my boss right. asking me to buy some gift cards or yep. something
2: like that. Yep. And okay. there's other types of this as well. Gift cards is actually number one for the campaigns. But payroll diversion is another kind of attack that accounts for about 25%. And then there are wire transfer, which uh, accounts for a smaller part, but usually has a higher payoff. Another interesting thing in this report is that employee reporting of phishing attempts rose by 6%. Oh, that oh, that's good. Uh, it seems like it's good, but there's some really distressing information in here to me. So reporting goes up by 6%, but false positive rates go up by 7%. Hmm. Right? Okay. <laughs> What's shocking about this is that The false positive rate for employee reported phishing attempts is 75% now. 75% of employee phishing reports are actually not phishing emails. And that's really bad because another point they make in this report is that the time to investigate, to respond to one of these reports has increased by 14% as well. So now if you are doing everything you need to do to respond to one of these reports, one of these employee reports, it takes about eight hours if it's a real incident. But it takes seven hours, a little over seven hours, if it's a false positive. Hmm. And 75% of them are false positives. Hmm. I don't know how to address that. I don't know. Right. I I mean. uh, You want your
1: employees to send in things they're suspicious of. Right. You, You want to encourage that behavior. Yep. So
2: do we need to do a better job training the employees to differentiate? Maybe. I really don't know. There's a technical solution that I'm going to be talking about in a second, but that doesn't help with false positives.
1: Hmm, The false
2: positives here are a huge time waster. Right. I think in the future, you're going to see some kind of automation on this. Although, how are we going to trust the automation is getting it right and the automation isn't producing more false positives or maybe it only eliminates half the false positives, right?
1: Yeah, just if you can reduce the number of things that require the eyes of a real person, that's going to be helpful.
2: Yeah, I would agree. There's a technology out there called Domain-Based Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance, or DMARC.
1: Right. right? Mm-hmm.
2: And basically, this is a DNS text record that companies put into out on the DNS services that tells other companies what their policy is for validating the email. And this goes all the way back to, I think, 2002, when Yahoo came up with a way of validating emails with signatures, digital signatures. Mm. But there's other ways it works as well. And it's actually a pretty robust system. What's interesting is that the report said the implementation of DMARC records has increased. But the companies who have implemented reject policies in these records, which means if this email doesn't match this policy, you should reject it, Mm -hmm. is only 13%. Mm. Fortune 500 companies have reject policies and their DMARC records. Right, So that means that the other 87% either have nothing or tell you to quarantine the the message, which is a very small portion of that. And then the other ones are just monitor the message. Mm -hmm. But it's shocking to me that the Fortune 500 companies don't have these policies fleshed out. Now, that's going to change very quickly, I think, that as these companies become more comfortable with the technology and the people at these companies become more comfortable, they're just going to start having these reject policies set. But they should really start looking at this a lot better, because it's a really great way to avoid business email compromise. Hmm. The problem with it, though, is that it has to be implemented on both sides of the communication, right? Right. And the report doesn't really touch on, or at least I couldn't find it, on how recipients work with DMARC. If I put out a good reject policy for Mm joescompany.com and somebody sends a spoofed email that spoofs my email address, joe at joescompany.com, if the recipient company doesn't go, well, let's check the DMARC record, then they just receive the message and they don't reject it when they should reject it. And there's no statistics to tell you how many companies have that configured. And I don't know how Agari would... Get that. The DNS records are publicly available, right? So it's easy to measure how many Fortune 500 companies have these, but it's kind of difficult to measure how many companies are implementing the check.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah, it's surprising to me that all these years in, that email is still as messy as it is. Well,
2: it's it stems all the way back from the intended purpose of email. And the problem in, is in the very name. It's Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. In SMTP, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol, I can put any address in the from address I want to in an email, and the server will send it. It'll comply.
1: Before backwards compatibility, we end up with all of this mm-hmm. messiness and security issues.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I was thinking about this in the past week, about How we we could change SMTP maybe to secure mail transfer protocol, which would also be SMTP. So that's terrible. But (laughs) (laughs) I think something needs to be done with email on an internet level to make it better.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just such a huge battleship to to turn. It is. Uh, It's a (laughs) massive battleship to turn. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day was sent in by a listener. This is a bit of a romance scam. The subject line is nice to meet you, and it goes like this. Hello, how are you? After telling me all about yourself, you sure sound like the kind of guy I'd love to meet. Go on a date and see where that leads. I'm supposed to be having a good day being the end of the seminar, and am supposed to wait for some kind of call if I'm being chosen by an agency or not while I get my flight book so I can fly tomorrow. But unfortunately my card came back declined. So contacted my card company since I knew the funds I left there and when the reports came I was told I purchased some phones which I never did then they mentioned something like identity theft so now my account is frozen and they promised to dispute the charges and issue another card to me when I get back to the states. I really want to get out of here as soon as I can if possible tomorrow but I don't have the means cause the airline agent is insisting I get the remaining funds before he can give me a ticket back. I don't know how you feel about this. Hopefully you see from my point of view and help me get out of here. Waiting to hear from you. Hugs. Text me. Joe, (laughs) are you going to text her back?
2: Uh, Yes, uh, of course. (laughs) I'm going to text her back and wire the money right away so that she can get back to the States.
1: I mean, it's a sad, sad situation here, and you just want to be a helpful person.
2: Yes. I'm wondering if this is seminar or semester, if it's supposed to be. If if someone is going to a seminar, who goes to a seminar without buying a round-trip ticket?
1: Good point. Yep. Good point. Although I suppose a seminar could be an opportunity to try to drum up some romance. Uh, you know, if you're out of town or something right. like that, you could see that being alluring to uh, some people. So uh, yeah, pr- pretty funny, pretty standard stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah. Good. Good one. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sending that in. All right.
1: Well, that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we're joined by David Spark and Alan Alford. They are the co-hosts of the Defense In-Depth podcast, and they're going to share some of their experiences with social engineering scams, And we are back, Joe. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with David Spark and Alan Alford. They are the co-hosts of the Defense In-Depth podcast, a really informational and entertaining show. So uh, we hope you'll check that out. Here's my conversation with David and Alan. David and Alan, thank you so much for taking the time for us. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. You know, as co-hosts of the Defense in Depth podcast, you all speak with a lot of CISOs. And I'm curious what stories they're bringing back to the two of you in terms of dealing with things like social engineering, things like phishing, all of these human-facing attacks that they're up against these days. David, why don't I start with you?
3: You know, it's interesting you go immediately to like the outward threats, but one of the things that we keep talking about and is reported often is that, you know, internal threats are the problem, but often the internal threats are not malicious in nature. They're purely someone trying to get their job done and they're using some type of technology to get it done. So, you know, what they think is the right thing to do, like forwarding email to a personal account or someone telling them, forge your email to my account, which could be done maliciously or kind of unknowingly. So sometimes we are, quote, hacking humans in not a way that's meant to be malicious, but the end result is malicious. And that often, I, I will just say just from the data, from the reports that we've seen, is more often the case of why there is, quote, an internal threat.
1: Hmm. You know. Alan, what's your
0: take? I'm with David. that insider threat has to be considered. but. By- but I think the external ones are certainly certainly applicable as well.
3: Oh, and I'm just saying that the, the data shows that the percentage of sort of internal threats that are non-malicious is actually higher in terms of Oh, agreed. Of agreed. Problems. Agreed. Yes. I, would,
0: I would agree with that 100%. And like you said, I think that the impetus is usually people trying to do their jobs and figuring out the most effective and, and most rapid way to get a thing done. I worked in one shop, I'm not going to name names, where we had a very highly ranked and highly placed administrator for uh, one of our uh, operating system environments. Basically, get walked out the door, not because he turned out to actually be a malicious hacker, but because he was trying to expedite his task list and made some shortcuts that ended up getting mistaken for hacker activity. A lot of people spent a lot of time running to ground exactly what happened and a, and a lot of resources were wasted. He kept denying that he had done anything. We ultimately mm. proved he did and it was an ugly situation and, and at the end of the day his motivation really was just, hey, I was trying to get my job done more quickly because I had a lot on my list to do. Wasn't malicious at all, but ended up you know going south for everybody.
1: I think it's a really good point. You know, I, I heard a story from someone who they were telling me that their organization would not allow them to use services like Dropbox. They couldn't connect to those kinds of file sharing services, but they all still had to get their work done. And so everybody knew that if someone was trying to send you something via Dropbox, well, the way to do that was to log on to the Wi-Fi of the Starbucks in the lobby of the building, (laughs) and now you can get the files that you needed. And I think when, when we talk about insider threats, that's the kind of thing where people are just trying to get their work
3: done. And you have to be careful not to put up these roadblocks because people will find a way around them. Don't move the data, move the access to the data. Keep the data in one location, just shift Where you're getting access to it, so people can do what they need to do, which is often work from home.
0: And there's a there's a greater lesson I think in that in that story of the Starbucks Wi-Fi, and and that is that security has to absolutely must, especially in today's climate of BYOD, work from home. You know, everything is SaaS now. You absolutely have to make security usable and friendly. And if you don't do those two things, security is going to be an obstacle, and security is going to be treated as an obstacle by those who most need it. And when people see something as an obstacle, what do they do? They go around it, they go under it, they go through it, they go over it, you know, whatever it takes to get away from that obstacle. So if you don't make security usable, if you don't make it friendly, if you don't make it a good user experience, right, you're going to get bypassed every time.
1: David, I'm curious, you know, from your point of view, the experience that you have in marketing in communications As a a skilled communicator yourself, how do you feel like we're doing in terms of messaging, of getting the word out about these sort of social engineering scams?
3: I I think it's minimal at most. I mean, honestly, most people hear little tidbits here and there, but I think the most common thing that is happening is this spear phishing attacks, where people know the people to go after within an organization to be able to get the money that they need, and to create these sort of fake emails. That, and I know you talk about it all the time on this show, where they're asking for you know gift cards. I mean, the the most common scam or essentially, you know, to get somebody invoiced. And it all seems legit. I think what companies should be doing is just understand that this is a normal practice. And how do we create internal systems that no matter what requests that comes in, we have a essentially a multi-factor authentication process that goes on that before anybody sends money out, a phone is picked up and you're calling somebody and you're getting a verbal okay from somebody or something else, whatever it is. But just assuming that this stuff happens all the time, I and mean, you must build at least two-factor authentication process to prevent the money actually going out the door.
1: Alan, from your perspective, as someone who uh, is in a leadership position with folks on the cyber side of the house, how do you send this message down to the people who work with you? In a variety of ways. Training and awareness are key.
0: Opening people's eyes to what can happen, sharing those stories, telling them and passing them on. Every shop I've been in, the bad thing has happened in one way or another. Somebody always manages to pull off some sort of scammer trick uh, and somebody always falls for it. So you collect those stories and share them and spread them. And you create training programs specifically around those, right? Anti-phishing training is pretty common practice. And, and one of the things I always do is I warn them, you know, what are the key signs that it's a bad email? It used to be in the olden days, you know, oh, oh, bad grammar. And, it, you know, it's obviously somebody that's scamming me. It's, you know, give money now, please. And they don't even spell please right. And they don't use a period like, oh, that's how it used to go. Now it's so much more sophisticated. And so you have to get into the psychological tricks that the bad guys use and incorporate that and get those lessons on the table in your training, right? a false sense of urgency, appealing to your sense of curiosity, appealing to your sense of greed. There was a famous scam for years. I lived in Austin and there was a very famous scam all over Austin. You'd be at some shop and coming out to your car and these guys in a white van would pull up. And they would offer to sell you stereo speakers. And what they would tell uh, you is that they worked for the in company. Not just Austin. Happen was this an Austin as well? well. Oh, oh so, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they worked <laughs> for the company. They accidentally ordered too many. You yeah. know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We'll sell them to you for super cheap. And the reality is there was no company. All of these speakers are actually poorly manufactured cheap speakers that this is their actual sales technique. This is their distribution network, right? Right. So it's things like that, right? If it seems too good to be true, it is. If it's appealing to your sense of greed, don't be greedy. (laughs) You know, there's some basic lessons there.
3: I was at this conference in Philadelphia and I heard something uh, regarding fishing tests on employees. One of the things we had talked about in a previous episode is that you can always create a fish to get people. There's always a way to get it. And certain fishes have degree of sort of success severity Mm -hmm. in terms of how well it can go. And what they did with their phishing test is they actually put a score before they sent it out like, oh, this one we expect, you know, a much higher open rate than this one. So when they did do estimates of how successful they were with their employees, it was graded on a curve, if you will. Hmm. That the, You know, they expected the tougher ones, you know, the ones that really got at people's greed or the fact that the Super Bowl was coming up. Those would be opened up more than some of the sort of lower risk ones. And, and I thought that was very wise to handle. That's a great it. approach. One of my most triumphant moments as a CISO
0: was getting the CEO himself to fall for one of my fake emails. <laughs> I was like, yes, I got him," um, and, and that was obviously a very cunning and very well-crafted email. You know, it's important with those programs, though. It's, it's all about you – know, Dave's question to us was, you know, what are you doing and what are you seeing in terms of education and awareness, right? Any phishing programs are oftentimes used incorrectly in my mind because they're oftentimes used as a vehicle for shaming the end users. Mm. If, if the goal is truly to educate and train and teach – Then, like David said, let that super crafty one out the door, but don't expect that you're going to get some miraculous resistance to it. You know, make it a learning lesson. Hey, you fell for a good one. Don't feel so bad. But why was this a good one? And what should you do next time? And and just walk them through it and give them support and give them guidance and, and keep these as examples to help just get it ingrained in people's minds.
1: What about having in place tools so that people can report these things easily, but also that they know that they're being followed up on, that they're not just going into some sort of void in the company and they they never hear anything about them again?
3: You know, that's a good point. I don't think we've ever discussed that on our show, like, How does the person who reports the phishing scam learn about how it's followed up? I mean, do you do anything like that, Alan?
0: We do. Actually, we do. And I was just thinking about my most recent security training I did in my, you know, where where I work, my day job. And I threw up a slide that must have had, I'm trying to count it now. There were at least seven different means by which people could get across a, a piece of security, you know, hey, there's a thing here. It needs attention. We gave them seven different means to do it. All of those means converge on the same place, and that same place processes, tracks, tickets, responds, and, and ultimately, you'll know whether you picked up the phone, whether you went to this one email address, whether you went to this one website, the data gets housed, the data gets tracked, and the responses are there and, and you will be communicated with. So it, it's important to open those floodgates as often as you can for the inputs. And, and to your point, let's make sure that there's actually some feedback, because if it goes into a vacuum, people are going to quit using it. Again, security has to be friendly or it won't get used. All right, Joe, what do you think?
1: Uh, Interesting guys,
0: Interesting
2: guys, yeah. First thing I want to talk about is they say internal threats are not necessarily a result of malintent. And he couldn't go into too much details. I'd like to know what Alan was talking about with the guy that got walked out.
1: Yeah, my guess is that he set up some sort of automation or something to make his job easier. But then when people started asking around and saying, what's this automation running? He was like, oh, what automation? I don't don't know anything about any automation. (laughs) That's That's my guess. It was something like that.
2: They're right. People are just trying to do their jobs, and they're trying to do the jobs in the most efficient way possible. Yeah. And the belief on the part of these people is if I can do this job quickly, then I can spend more time doing other stuff for the company. Everybody understands you're selling your time to the company. It's not necessarily a lazy thing, I don't think. I think it's actually a productivity thing. People want to be productive. That's my opinion. Yeah. But security does have to be usable. I've told this story a number of times and it's anecdotal, but in healthcare, in hospitals, there are or or were nurses whose job it was every now and then to go around and wiggle the mice on computers so that the computers didn't lock. So that when people walk into the room with the computer or to the treatment center or whatever, wherever it is, that they don't have to do anything other than start using the computer. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people have moved on. I know that uh, at Hopkins, the facilities use like a CAC card, but it's kind of like a chip and pin system. Right. So it's fast. right? And (laughs) and that's the point. It has to be fast and it has to be usable. It can't stand in the way, particularly in healthcare.
1: I remember uh, for a while, uh, you may still be able to get this. There were some folks making USB dongles that basically wiggled the mouse every couple minutes. Right,
2: yeah, actually the FBI (laughs) uses that when they're investigating cybercrimes. They stick it in as part of their forensics to prevent the machine from locking if they catch somebody red-handed. Oh, interesting. Again, we hear that policies and process are key, particularly for uh, business email compromise. People need to follow the process and follow the policy. And your comment about the Starbucks Wi-Fi uh-huh. Getting around that. I kind of blame the, the employees for going around it, but I also kind of blame management for saying, no, nobody's going to use Dropbox. Right. Right. There's got to be some other way to go about this. Right. Yeah. That, well, and I think that's the bigger point is
1: that, you know, people still have to get their work done. Right. And they're measured. They're they're rewarded and punished by how well they get their work done. So you've incentivized these people. To get around
2: your security. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And that gets me to my final point. If you're running one of these phishing exercises, don't use them to shame people. I don't know how often this happens, but I get this sense that it does happen, that so many people fell for the email and we're shaming them. And the, the guys are right about that, that if you write a really good phishing email, you can expect a higher click rate. On it, sure. Yeah, you know, you can expect more of your your employees to fall for it, and use that as a teaching moment. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, but do not shame people. That is counterproductive.
1: Yeah, use a carrot, not a stick, right?
2: I yeah. For this for this kind of thing, I say use a carrot, not a stick. Yeah. Other times I say use the stick, but not in this case. <laughs> if you're going to be fishing your own employees, then that is a one hundred percent carrot situation.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, once again, thanks to David Spark and Alan Alford for joining us. Uh, They are co-hosts of the Defense in Depth podcast. We hope you'll uh, check that out. It is a good show. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our editor is John Petrick. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.